Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol Extra Film Coated Tablets contain paracetamol. For pain relief, always read the label or leaflet. Good morning. Evelyn O'Rourke here in for Sinead Mooney. And I guarantee you this will wake you up this morning. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has warned this year's COP27 climate summit in Egypt that humanity must cooperate or perish. Addressing world leaders, Mr Guterres warned that the fight against climate change was being lost. And the clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. All eyes on COP27 as world leaders grapple with so many global climate crisis issues. And those sobering words set the tone for the week. More sobering words too, as Monday's Doc on One called Blackrock Boys featured the harrowing stories of abuse by priests on children in some of Ireland's most prestigious schools. And my dad turned around and he said, David, did that priest ever do anything to you down in Blackrock College? And I broke down crying. I said, yeah. But more about that later in the programme. For now, we talk more about COP27. And when you hear this on Drive Time on Thursday... Climate change poses a serious threat, as you know, to all Caribbean nations, despite their low contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions. You know that it's so serious for so many communities. And one country significantly impacted is Jamaica. Cormac O'Hara there. And he was joined on the line by the Jamaican junior minister and senator, Matthew Samuda, who's attending COP. Our message is very clear. We are running out of time. We are already seeing loss of beaches and loss of coastline. Saltwater intrusion into our water supply. That's deteriorating soil quality and reduction in pollination rates. And it is not just a moral imperative for us to call for this financing, but a financial imperative that it becomes a reality. Am I right in saying that Jamaica has 70% of its population living within uh, three miles or five kilometres or so of the sea? We are now looking at relocation of persons. And if you know the island, it's not a particularly big space. Persons have lived where it's been economical to build homes before. Moving further inland creates a need for more expensive construction. It creates a massive economic crisis for us. Former President Mary Robinson joined Audrey Carvel on Morning Ireland. Unfortunately, the terrible war in Ukraine has slowed progress. It made European countries concentrate on how to replace the gas they were getting from Russia with gas elsewhere. Actually, now I think the the rethink is dawning. No, this is the moment for Europe to go even faster into clean energy. But still, it broke a momentum that was sort of there after COP26. And the truth is, emissions are still going up, and yet we have to cut them. In Ireland, we have to cut them by 51% by 2030. This is really, really going to be all absorbing now. And in relation to those emissions, even if our current plan plus all the other current plans come to fruition on climate emissions reductions, emissions will rise by 10% by 2030. We haven't yet seen real efforts uh, being made to implement. That's what this COP is all about. And I do like 
the way that uh, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, has talked about a solidarity pact between developed and developing countries. We saw the beginnings of that even in Glasgow with the commitment of 8.5 billion to South Africa. It's to help South Africa get out of coal. There's now a realisation that the developed countries have to help the large emerging economies to get out of and into clean energy. China's already there. It's, it's moving very fast on solar and electric vehicles, etc. India has done a lot. But actually, those heads of state are not at the COP. They will be at the G20 during COP. And the G20 is responsible for more money than COP. I like what Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, is saying. She made a powerful speech yesterday. And what she is saying is we need the World Bank and the IMF to open their coffers in a new way with climate finance. And she's absolutely right. And the elders are very supportive. And more influential voices on this too. Now, my next guest is a climate activist and a global icon. Greta Thunberg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Internationally renowned activist and one of the world's most famous teenagers, Greta Thunberg, spoke to Brendan O'Connor on Sunday. So it strikes me, Greta, do you think we need to completely change how we live in order to save the earth? Like, does does consumerism and economies as as we know it and, and our whole way of life have to change? I mean, if we want to stay stay below the internationally agreed climate targets, then yes, uh, overall in general, we will have to make big changes. But then again, many people w- will not need to make that big of changes because it is a few people who are responsible for the majority of our CO2 emissions, the ones living way above our planetary boundaries. So I think rather than focusing on everyday people, what we need to do, we need to focus and call out those who are mostly responsible for this crisis. The richest 10% of the world's population are responsible for 50% of our global emissions. I don't know. It's pretty bad that we left this to kids and young people to sort out, isn't it? Yeah, it's very unfair. <laughs> yeah. Um, because we are not the ones who have created this crisis. We were, have just been handed this world where there was a climate crisis. And it seems like there are so few who use their privilege and their opportunities to act so that there is a very unproportionately big responsibility that falls on the shoulders of young people. Meanwhile, here at home, we're all talking about the milder weather. We're enjoying it, but feeling odd about it. And now with the time at four minutes to eight, almost unseasonably warm this morning coming in. Here's Matthew Martin at Meta. Junior Minister Patrick O'Donovan told Morning Ireland that he is very concerned about the impact of the climate crisis. In this week of Sharm el-Sheikh, we also have to start a very serious conversation. And I've been saying this for a long time in relation to climate adaptation and, and building resilience. does that mean not living on floodplains, for instance? It does. And it means that local authorities have to stop zoning land, which they have. But we will have, unfortunately, in this country, some people that will have to leave their homes because of climate change. And we talk about climate migrants as something that is a, a far distant thing that is difficult to comprehend but there will be people in this country that will become migrants because of changes to the coast. And would the Shannon Basin would that be one of the key areas in that regard? Well there's a lot of areas around the country that I worry about. When I see a weather forecast for Metairn with strong southerly winds, with surges where the land is sodden, which it is at the moment, then there's communities all across the south coast for instance that I'm particularly worried about and these are not places of small population density. Like the area that I the greatest level of concern for is Cork City. It was a miracle back in the 
referring to the controversy about the flood works <clears throat> on the Keys? I'm referring to what's going on really since 2009 where it was a miracle that people weren't drowned in their bids and I don't say that lightly. We are living in an era now where our climate is running faster than our planning process and that can't continue. Now Eamon Ryan, Minister for Environment, Climate and Communications joins me from our Dáil studio. Good morning to you. His government colleague, Minister Eamon Ryan, joined Claire Byrne in studio and he urged us all not to despair. Good morning, Claire. Minister, now I know you're heading to Egypt at the weekend, but you will be representing a country that promised to cut emissions, but instead of that, our emissions have grown in 2021 by 4.7%. What are you planning to tell your colleagues at the COP meeting about how we're going to remedy that? Well, firstly, that we're committed to the Paris Climate Agreement to play our part in this great challenge and that we'll do that as a member of the European Union, that we have probably one of the strongest laws now in the country that will steer us in this direction and that's backed up by European laws based on this Green New Deal and that while, yes, our emissions increased last year, largely because we're in transport, we're coming out of COVID and continued increase in uh, agricultural emissions, we have in place a plan and we're doing real measures which will see our emissions come down and our country be stronger and better for it. Yep, we are the third highest emitters per capita in the EU. True, and that's why we do have to change. Can I give some examples? Because I think the public out there, there's so much good, but you could get a sense, God Almighty, nothing's possible. We can't do this. I firmly believe we can. And I want to give you, if I can, just some examples of things that are happening. Firstly, in improving our homes so that we stop burning fossil fuels and heating our homes and create much better, warmer homes. We set out our plan that we would do 27,000 houses upgrades this year. We will deliver that oh, and we can do it. But you're still asking people to get into debt to do it, you know, and it's not, it's not really an attractive option for people to do that. It's a hell of a lot more attractive option than living a cold, leaky, drafty, inefficient home with very high bills. Yeah, I mean, you're making a choice, though. Do I want to be cold and debt free or warm and saddled with a debt? where that debt can be paid by the savings you make in the electricity bill, those one-stop shops, which are now in existence, which are now working, it makes economic sense. And for those households that can't afford it, we provide much higher grants so that that affordability issue is taken out. Hmm. You'd be forgiven for stirring your coffee a little bit gloomily this morning. Very strong language may be necessary for governments, but actually it doesn't help. Back on Tuesday's Morning Ireland, Mary Robinson took it on herself to give us all an encouraging note and to inspire us. I think what motivates people is thinking about our best times are there if we just move rapidly. And we can do it with this moonshot mentality that Mia Motley is calling for. It's also important that the Secretary General has called for a solidarity pact. You know, he's saying we also need developed and developing countries to have cooperation. And I fully agree on that. And having nicely cheered you up for the day, it's a good time maybe for us to disappear for a minute and take a quick break. Playback on RTE Radio 1. Folter Rush. On Saturday morning, Brendan O'Connor was joined in studio by a man who had a lot to say about life, death, God, power, family, and love. Joined by a Northside Dope who've just written his first book. Bono, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on your programme. In a wide ranging and compelling interview, Bono and Brendan discussed all the big issues. What would you expect any less from Bono? I mean, he is a rock star after all. You wonder now, the desire to be the centre of attention, a swollen sense of self. Are you kind of starting to think that Bono has (laughs) ego issues? (laughs) Look, 
what use would a rock star be without a messianic complex? Do yeah. you know what I mean? But are you beating yourself up about it? No, suddenly? no, yeah. no. Yeah, OK. Bono is currently on a major tour promoting his memoir, Surrender, where he writes candidly about the experiences that have shaped the man he is today. Making a show out of yourself, which is, you know, what I do for a living. It's just worth you know, asking yourself, where does that come from? Why do you need 25,000 people a night screaming, I love you, to feel like mm. a normal person? That's surely not normal. It was, the, it was the right time to ask those questions. And then, of course, you d- dis- discover these incredible insights, you know, which I, which I was not naive to have at an early age, which is things like everyone I needed was right there. You know, Mount Temple yeah. Comprehensive, you know, yeah. Ali. I meet Ali, I meet the four members of the band, you know, we we we, we join each other the same week, you know. Um, I've never said it like that before. That's interesting. We join yeah. each yeah. other, Ali and I, and I and the band. But But I also learned to understand that the things that were seemingly wounds were were great opportunities opening up. You know, you lose your mother at an early age, your puberty, lots of people went through much worse, but it becomes a gift for you because you're you're trying to fill that hole with music, with friendship. It's become such a gift to me, mm. a lot of the, the things that I might have complained about just by writing about it. He writes about how he discovered late in life that his cousin Scott was actually his brother. And he also writes about the devastating impact that his beloved mother Iris's death had him when he was just 14. You mentioned then your your mother dying when you were um, at, at that young stage. It's it's kind of the, it's the casual cruelty of the universe in a way. The way you found out even that Iris had died is kind of quietly devastating, isn't it? Tell me about that. My grandfather, he had a heart attack, fell off the bed, kicked the bucket, literally, uh, in this case. I wake up the next morning to hear this news and my mother tells me and she's the eldest sister, so she goes off to organise everything, including the funeral. I next see her at the funeral, and as he's been, my grandfather gags Rankin, has been lowered into the ground, my mother uh, faints, uh, we think, but she had an aneurysm. And that was really the last conversation I had with her was, was, that, was that morning. So, uh, yeah, unusual. And then you go back to the house post your grandfather's funeral and you hear the adults talking, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That Those whispers, like, like, uh, yeah, like leaves blowing around. Yes, yes, you know, whispers, Iris, Iris, she's passed, Iris, Iris. And then I remember my, my uncle arriving in and, you know, the kind of wailing, the keening thing that I suppose we do in Ireland. And yes, you know, I remember the grief of, of that family and, um, it made a mark on me for sure. But was it the Dalai Lama who says, we begin our meditation on life with death? And sounds like a bit of a bummed out thing to say, but, you know, I think it's probably true. My, it, it started with me right there at puberty. And defiance is the essence of romance. Defiance is what rock and roll music is to me. That's what the joy of U2's music is the ecstatic, it's life force. That uh, rage against the dying of the light, that's at the heart of who we are. Bono there on Brendan O'Connor last Saturday.
And while they covered so many topics, one of the headline-grabbing stories afterwards was his revelation that he and his wife, Ali, had turned down the offer to become godparents to Michael Hutchins and Paulie Yates' child. This led Drive Time on Tuesday to ask Fiona Looney, self-confessed, hopeless godmother, what she made of all this, with Cormac O'Hara asking her Fiona, hopeless godmother. (laughs) I think the only way that you can uh, sort of politely refuse to be a godparent is if you happen to be Bono, which is probably the best excuse <laughs> in the world. For the rest of us mere mortals, it, it does become a bit trickier. And I don't think that Michael Hutchins and Paul Yates were expecting Bono to prepare Tiger Lily for the sacraments, let's be honest. I mean, obviously, nobody asks complete strangers, although that said, if Bono wants to belatedly <laughs> take one of mine, I'd be more than happy <laughs> 21 years of back money for that for them. Um, <laughs> Tell me, Fiona, how long have you kept up the tradition of godparents buying presents? Is it up to 18 or 21? You have to go all the way to 21 and then you go out of the bag, you bloody go. Go as soon as you can. <laughs> but whatever about godparents, as we know, families are a complex business. But what happens when decisions that you make have such a profound effect on your family that you end up estranged from them? On Wednesday morning, Ryan Tuberty was joined in studio by an extraordinary man. Tommy Reichenstahl, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Pleasure. And sitting beside them in studio was Alexandra Semft. And while these two guests are unrelated, their family lives are inextricably linked for the bleakest of reasons, as they told Ryan. So join the dot for me, Tommy, between the connection between Alexandra's grandfather and your family. Well, there is a big connection because he was the man in Slovakia that signed the deportation order to these extermination camps. And I lost 35 members of my family. So he is the man that signed the order. Alexandra went on to explain that she's on a mission to tackle her grandfather's past, but that her family doesn't support this decision. I'm, I'm trying to figure you out, uh, Alexandra, and I mean this so respectfully. You have no responsibility. You are not your grandfather's keeper and you're not your family's keeper necessarily. But it's a, it's a desperate, evil story that you can either run away from or confront, that you've chosen to confront. Well, it's not something that's only sitting in my head. It's sitting in my heart as well. I appreciate well. You that. Know, yes. It's a cognitive as well as an emotional process. I, I, I'm not responsible for what my grandfather did, but I'm, I feel responsible for revealing what he did and not mm. to kind of cover up, continue lying or denying. It's important to bring these stories out and to talk about them, to break the taboo. You know, yes. Although he is my relative... I cannot become an accomplice in keeping silent. We have to talk about the perpetrators because those were the ones who were responsible at the time and perpetration can happen again and again. I mean, we see our democracies being under attack everywhere in the world right now and the political mission I have too. We need to watch out for systems breaking down again and uh, democracies falling apart because things like that can happen again if we don't reflect. And Tommy and Alexandra discussed their unique connection and they described their first meeting. And what did you feel when you first shook hands with I don't know did you shake hands did you embrace did you want you embraced oh my goodness how did that feel and and why did you want to do that there is something in me 
the things that between the black and white, there is also a gray area. These people, even the criminal, they went through terrible indoctrination. Just stepping on the platform and seeing him, we immediately embraced for some reason. Yeah, And I think this kind of gesture and this human contact that we developed breaks the spell of the perpetrators. And the curse, of course, it's a curse. curse, It is a curse, but you have to break the curse at some stage. That doesn't undo history. That doesn't forgive anything. Uh, But it's important to inform people to know what happened. And they were here as guests of the Holocaust Awareness Ireland event. But while they are trying to lift the lid on a dark chapter in world history, a new movie from award-winning Irish writer and director Frank Berry is doing the same with his film Aisha, this about a woman negotiating the asylum process here in Ireland. The movie features Letitia Wright and Josh O'Connor. How long were they here? Five years. Where are they now? In a detention centre in the UK. I didn't know I'd be doing stuff like that. Normally just do offices and warehouses. Yes, the guy who played Prince, now King Charles in The Crown, but he sounds a little bit different in this, as Sean Rocks pointed out to Josh on Tuesday's Arena. I don't know to talk to you, so I don't know if he's not that. So he's don't try to get us to break the rules or whatever. So why are you talking to me? Uh, Josh O'Connor, <laughs> what yeah. part of Dublin did you grow up in? What an extraordinary <laughs> accent you got there. <laughs> I, honestly, I haven't a clue. I mean, Frank says it's good and that's all that I need to hear. But um, I don't know. The accent thing, it's terrifying because I guess you sort of, when we made this film, we were all in... I think we were all in, still in lockdown, weren't we, Frank? Yeah, I think. yes. Yeah, we, I had two weeks getting prepped and just found myself walking around the town trying to listen to people and ah. talk to people. And I made friends with a guy called Danny who I met on the streets and he might not have known it, but he was sort of helping me out a little bit. <laughs> he was your, um, your major accent coach. But when I hear you talking about the politics behind the systems, I'm hearing the man who said, I'm a Republican, I'm not interested in the royal family. <laughs> Yes. I'm guessing the politics of this film probably closer to the politics <laughs> that you had to play in The Crown. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think that that sort of quote has sort of followed me around for a That's little bit. Of, like, I am a Republican, but I don't dislike anyone in the royal family. I, I'm sure very nice people and do interesting things. And some of them probably aren't so nice and like any family. But um, but as an institution, I don't agree with it. And I, likewise, in Aisha, I think this world is something that we don't talk about enough, really. Sean rocks there with Josh O'Connor, who made his big breakthrough playing Prince Charles in The Crown. But of course, he's been supplanted this year with a new cast for season five of the Netflix series, which dropped this week, with Dominic West this time in the role. Before I watched it, I was really concerned about um, the casting of Charles. Journalists Kevin Doyle and Lydia Starbuck joined Claire Burnett's studio to share their views on the show, which is, you know, based on fact. Well, fiction. Well, a kind of a fact. Well, a fictional version of fact. You know what I mean? He's absolutely fantastic. So that's gonna, Do- Dominic West, who people will be familiar with. Absolutely, and he does it very well. It's all very subtle. It's quite below the radar. He's got all of the mannerisms, but actually it's a performance rather than an impression. Elizabeth Debicki as Diana is great, but they have to work their socks off to beat Imelda Staunton because she has nailed our public perception of Queen Elizabeth II at this time. She's fabulous, and that's the issue for the Crown. They're portraying something that most of us remember, and so it's kind of interpreting something we all know as a drama. Yeah, you're doing a good job of whetting our appetites for it when we uh, sit down to, to watch it. I've enjoyed 
it more than I thought I would. Kevin, Liddy's talking about those who remember it and those who don't when it, when it actually happened. I mean, you probably don't remember it, I'm guessing. I'm 37, there. I'll just <laughs> ask the question. Come on, you're a hard-hitting broadcaster. Ask the question you want to ask. No, I don't, but I am old enough that I remember all around it. So I remember so vividly the day Princess Diana died. I was 13 year old. I was in Mosny at the community games and all the coaches that were with us for the athletics going, Princess Diana's dead, Princess Diana. And you just remember this ripple that was going around the place. And had you expected Lydia to be so enthusiastic about Dominic West playing Prince Charles? No, because for me, for me, Dominic West will always be McNulty from The Wire. Interestingly, um, Dominic West's son is actually playing Prince William, which is kind of... I did not know that. Yeah, so his son Senan, who I think is 13, it's his first acting role and he's actually playing William so father and son actor are playing father and son in real mm-hmm. life Well we look forward to watching it Lydia thank you very much uh, for joining us and Kevin before you go I need to ask you about something else on our screens tonight I'm Matt Hancock I'm the MP for West Suffolk and I'm best known for being the former health secretary Survival in the jungle is uh, it's a good metaphor for the world I work in I hadn't heard that before is that real? Is that real? Is that really him? It is. What what do you make of that? Matt Hancock is being paid allegedly £400,000. Not euros, pounds to go into the jungle, Claire. I was just trying, I was trying to think of what the Irish equivalent of it is. The uh, the former minister, Finian McGrath, did Eurostar at one stage. Michael Healy Ray did Celebs Go Wild, which was kind of a really low rent version of I'm a Celebrity. But nothing comes close to what Matt Hancock has done. All I can conclude is that he's never watched the show. He'll be voted for for every single trial, right, won't he? Well, if your job as a politician is to get votes, (laughs) um, it's going to be rough and tumble. Kevin Doyle there with Claire on Tuesday's show. And while The Crown depicts the life of the Queen and the family, of course, we know that it's a role and a job that unusually for a woman of her time was lined up from a young age. But what about ordinary women from times past? Women who had to make their own way in the working world. OK, let's look at the, the main thoroughfare of Dublin. Were there many women running businesses there or in the immediate area? Well, actually, there were. Dr Antonia Hart joined Miles Dungan on the History Show on Sunday evening to tell him about her research into the little-known working lives of women in Dublin in the late 19th century specifically women who had businesses on Sackville Street or O'Connell Street as we know it now. And next time you're in Dublin city centre, I promise you'll look at Burger King in a different way. But Sackville Street itself was where the really smart shops were. You know, it was where the smart hotels were, the luxury confectioners and pipe and cigar shops, the department stores. And it's where everybody wanted to do business and it's where the smart shoppers wanted to go. So I looked at it to try to get an idea of what going into town would have felt like, say, in in the 1890s. So let's say if you got a tram in from the suburbs and you got off at what is now the spire, which would have been the pillar, which was the tram terminus. And if you did um, a sort of 15-minute amble, really, down Sackville Street along Eden Quay, up Marlborough Street, back to the, the pillar to get your tram home, on that walk you would have passed at street level, about 300 businesses. About 30 of those would have been run by women. It probably doesn't seem like a lot, but when you think that on that 15-minute walk, you would have been passing a woman's business every 30 seconds, I think then you start to get an idea of how normal it must have seemed to see a woman in business. But what they make of the modern Irish woman who likes fast cars, glamour and vabavoom. Ray Darcy invited Formula One fanatic Caitlin Roach from Tremor and Waterford who appears in a TV show called The Shift 
which is about driving, as she explained in detail, she told Ray more about her favourite pastime. Okay, oh, suppose 10 years ago, yeah. you weren't the typical Formula One fan. Is I that... wasn't a fan at all. No, I know, but... It wasn't a girl sport at all. It wasn't a young person sport. But now I love it. You bit. found your tribe then? Yeah, all through social media. Like, it was, was scrolling on TikTok. Someone was like, oh, I'm making a group for girls who want to get in the sport because a lot of guys say you're only in it because the driver's good looking. And I'm like, they're wearing a helmet for two hours. Like, you're not seeing a face at all. <laughs> we all got talking. And after a week then, I was like, please go to Silverstone. Like, And they were like, yeah, sure. And I had to lie to my mom I was like I've known them for months mom I always talk about them and she's like do you? Complete strangers Complete strangers from New Zealand from Canada I was like worst case I just ditched them So So you put out the call on social media and then somebody from New Zealand So when you went over to Silverstone this is your first time did you see a lot of people like you? you Oh so many like I couldn't believe it I thought I would be going into like an old men's kind of club like and you know like I didn't know Just be a little bit more sensitive to me Yeah (laughs) sorry just being honest Um, and then I thought like okay like you know like I'm not rich like I don't like it's a real like wealthy sport and Mm. I was like oh god like I'm bringing in my own vodka that I got cheap in Tesco and stuff like that so I was like oh no cringing but it was just all people that just wanted to have fun you Mm. know were just there for the atmosphere and stuff like that the pit stops are like they're they're so essential if you get a slow pit stop of more than three seconds you could be out of the race like I feel like I know him personally I'm like oh yeah that's Daniel Ricciardo he lives in (laughs) Australia but he may as well be from like Ballybricken or somewhere in Waterford like the way like I know so much about them so it's brilliant like I feel like they're like friends and stuff even though they don't know I exist but I'm like yeah we know each other Playback on RTE Radio 1 Welcome back Evelyn O'Rourke here sitting in for Sinead Mooney this week Sport Good sports stories the heart-in-your-mouth kind. The will-they-won't-they, can-he-do-it. The sports moments, the events. They can lift your heart. And last weekend, the skies were filled with cheers. Inside the 22-minute line. But they go chasing for with that one. Mark Hansen for the corner. Mark Hansen for the try. A try for Ireland. A try for Mark Hansen. As the world champions were prized open. Mark Hansen from deepest Panamara. Beautifully swinging at the moment down the triple rush and right at the very end. This is a very good exercise from Reese up into handstand and lands it perfectly. Oh, it's a dangerous one. Following it in and this time Pearl Slattery gets her head on it and that's two now for Shells. Turning the head by 19 to 16. We all know what a great year that was. Available here now for Jemison Gibson Park. The 80 minutes is up as they got on the ball. They hammered it into touch. And the referee from Georgia, Nika Amashu Kelly, has uh, blown the whistle. It has been an enthralling test game. This compilation from Darren Frehel has heard on Morning Ireland. But of course, the joy of radio is that across a week we hear all sorts of stories. Stories like those from the brightest moments in people's lives to voices sharing their darkest truths. And for this next section, we are issuing a warning here that this next compilation is not suitable for younger ears as it contains deeply complex, sensitive and very distressing stories. Stories that have stopped many of us in our tracks this week. The six o'clock news came on. Brian Dobson was reading it and it was about child abuse. And my dad turned around and he said, David, did that priest ever do anything to you? Down in Blackwood College, I broke down crying. I said, yeah. And after kind of telling my mum and dad that night, we were in the kitchen. I think we polished up two bottles of wine. 
We didn't eat dinner. And then my dad phoned my brother Mark. And told me that my brother was back in Ireland and he'd had a breakdown and said stuff had happened to him as he was growing up. And that was to do with sexual abuse. And this is when my father rang me up. Did I, was I aware of this or anything like that? And I said, no, I don't know anything. But I said, I believe him. Uh, I believe him immediately. And my father said, why? And I said, well, this is what happened to me as well. On Monday, the Doc on One blasted the lid off secrets that people have been carrying for decades. Here, producer Liam O'Brien talked to Claire Byrne about his harrowing documentary, Black Rock Boys, that tells the story of two brothers, David and Mark Ryan, and the abuse they endured as schoolchildren. Yeah, so this evening's Doc and One, Claire, it's the final in our 2022 season. And as you mentioned, it's it's titled Black Rock Boys. And it tells, I suppose, the very personal story of, of, of two brothers, uh, victims, survivors of child sex abuse at Black Rock College in South County Dublin. Um, you know, it's focused specifically on the boys and the abuse they suffered at the hands of a, a spirit and priest. And Black Rock College itself is one of 10 schools in Ireland that's run by the spirit and religious order. You know, amongst those 10 schools are some of the most exclusive fee-paying schools in Ireland. And in respect of the abuse, what are the years we're talking about, Liam? So we're specifically talking about in the case of the, the two brothers during the 1970s and early 1980s. We go through the abuse. We also go through the places, the locations that that abuse took place in on the Black Rock College campus and Willow Park, which is the primary school. Here, producer Liam O'Brien details the response from the Spiritans, formerly known as the Holy Ghost Fathers. So about three weeks ago, we sent them a series of questions. We have uh, this response, so let's go through it. Father mm-hmm. Martin Kelly says, thanks for your letter. He then says, as you'll be aware, a review in 2012 by the National Board for Safeguarding Children in the Catholic Church in Ireland revealed abuse by members of the Irish Spiritans over a 50-year period. At that time, the provincial made a public apology. So, Liam, the first question you asked was how many individuals have made allegations of abuse? So Father Kelly's response was, currently our records indicate that 233 identified people have made allegations of abuse against identified Irish Spiritans and he told us that a total of 77 Spiritans have now had allegations made against them. So since 2004, the amount paid, now this is in terms of settlements, of claims of abuse and also towards support services, that amounts to over €5 million. Yeah, that's correct. And Father Kelly also mentioned that all of those settlements were paid for from the Spirit and Congregation resources. Last Saturday morning, David, Mark and Maura met with and each spoke with the Provincial of the Spiritans, Father Martin Kelly, and with Liam Lally, the designated person within the Spiritans, for dealing with allegations of child sexual abuse. They both detailed their stories and felt they were genuinely listened to. They have described the meeting as successful, said that the Spiritans were very apologetic and that a written apology was agreed to follow. And the Spiritans have agreed to look through their records to try and give answers to all of those questions. All week, the shockwaves from the Dock on One broadcast on Monday at six o'clock. Those shockwaves were heard on Liveline. I remember being locked in this room. The bleak testimony arising from the documentary filled the airwaves as caller... I've suffered from depression, incredible rage for over 40 years. After a caller... He used to take me to his bedroom and molest me while he had me read from the Bible for him. 
after caller. Joe, Eddie Baylor, he was a particularly, you know, violent and sadistic man. I, w- I would say he was a psychopath. Joe, I'm sick to the pit of my stomach today as I remember my dear brother who suffered terrible sexual abuse whilst a boarder at Rockwell College in the late 60s. After caller. You went to St. Michael's here in Dublin. That's correct. Yeah. I was away in a, a weekend in the Glen of Amal. The abuse took place over two nights. After caller. He was in the bathroom and then walk across the corridor and come into my room. Caller. After caller. Rang Joe Duffy to share their stories of abuse at the hands of priests in some of Ireland's most prestigious schools. Here are just some of those calls. I think Harry could have killed me, to be honest with you. He was such a brute. You know, he had beaten me, like, many times. And certainly the day he came down to the the desk to put his hands up my short trousers and found that I was wearing long ones that day, <laughs> he, oh, he threw the duster down at me. He dragged me in from, from, from the fifth form classes, which are right down one end of Willow. And the reason you wore the long trousers that day was, as you explained in your email, you were on your way to school in your in your uniform, your short trousers, and your dad dropped you and you uh, ran into the bushes and put on a pair of long trousers to try and keep this man away from you in, in school. Yeah, I couldn't take it anymore. I'd had, a, I'd had enough. Like He was a brilliant... He used to come out to the house to dinner with Flood. It was definitely, you know, uh, making me feel great telling my parents that they were going to bring over the scouts from Leeds United to watch me play because I was so good. Now, I mean, I was good, but I wasn't that good. Philip Mulville. Philip, back to this uh, this new name we heard today. Uh, he was known when he was a Christian brother, uh, when he thought across England, he was Irish, he was known as Brother Ignatius Baylor. And then when he came to teach in Willow Park in uh, Dublin, in the 70s, he was known as Edward Baylor. You remember him, Philip? I do remember him, Joe. Eddie Baylor, particularly violent towards children. He would have been in third or fourth form. And we were like maybe eight, eight years of age. So small little fellas, you know. We had this a reader for our English class called RTSP. Okay. And it was a big, heavy reader with a hardback book, like a heavy book that would weigh down our school bags and whatnot. But uh, God forbid if you forgot your reader, because Baylor's punishment was he would, yeah. he would kneel the, the students facing the wall on, on the hard kind of mosaic floor. And he would come around with this RTSP book and he would bring it right behind his head and slam it down on young children's heads. And I, I don't know how he ever got into, uh, you know, teaching or into access to children. A small, angry little man who used to beat up children. We now know he used to rape children. I take your point yeah. that that he never targeted you, yeah. but, but and but, then yeah. uh, Philip, this man was caught eventually in 1986 in a hotel in North Dublin yeah. with a young child. That's right, yeah. By yeah, the guardie, so obviously there was there was something untoward going on to say the least, and he got sentenced to two years in prison. Yeah. Child, but we don't know yeah. whether he served the sentence or not. We've received a number of other calls about uh, Aloysius yeah. Flood. Father Hannan. Let all the lads tell you, tell you about uh, Father Hannan. Yeah. That documentary mentioned that another boy, David's friend, was also abused and was also involved in the court cases that followed. And we're now joined by that third boy, Michael, who was abused by Father Tom O'Byrne. Uh, Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Uh, Michael, why have you decided to speak out now? Um, I want to speak out in support of David and Mark for their tremendous courage and yeah. the documentary they made. 
but also because I think it's it's the right thing to do. I mean, I've been fighting this fight with myself and with the school in many ways for many, many years, not getting anywhere. If you go back to the Ferns report and the Ferns government inquiry, set up, by the way, by Michal Martin, Ferns inquiry dealt with 100 allegations. There are now 233 allegations and rising against individuals. Tell us how you forced, or indeed how he forced, Father Tom O'Brien, as he was then, came across you, Michael. I was a student in Willow Park and Blackwood College, and but it started off very similar to David with swimming lessons, private swimming lessons. He abused us all as part of the swimming lessons that he gave us. Um, abuse me elsewhere as well. Tell you if you like. I mean, it was yeah. in the swimming pool. What he used to do with asking us to model different types of um, swimming, well, thongs for, yeah. which was awful. And also, he he abused me in, in Clareville priest's house where the priest used to live. And he took you to his room. He did. Somebody else should remark on the fact that there was a very young boy going out, in and out of a priest's bedroom. That was one thing, even at the time it happened, that was one thing that I was shocked at. And he used to molest me while he had me read from the Bible for him. It must have been one of his jollies. Very creepy thing to do. But walking out of his bedroom, my eyes were, I'm sure, as big as saucers. And I passed priests in the corridor, leaving his room. If they didn't confront him, ask why, they were either complicit in it a culture of intimidation where the people who lived there didn't speak about it, but it kept the abuse covered up for many, many years, far too many years. Now, one of the recurring names we heard this week was Father Aloysius Flood. And on Thursday, Joe got this call. Michelle Flood, Michelle, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Joe. You're in Mayo. Unfortunately, this has brought up your own experiences with your uncle, Father Aloysius Flood. Yes, known as Alo. Okay. He was very revered at our home. I, I thought I would bring his name to my grave. I never thought his name would come out. The church have protected him for far too long. And did he did he perpetrate your uncle abuse on you, Michelle? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I've blocked out an awful lot, Joe, but yeah. he visited our home on every occasion. And he would go to the bathroom and pretend... He was in the bathroom and then walk across the corridor and come into my room. So he was the only brother of my father. And my father never believed me that he was doing this. I reported it in 1997, I think, around that date, to the guards in Galway, Mill Street. I told them if this was investigated, they would be opening a can of worms. Because I knew that he was in St. Michael's College. He had been to Black Rock. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he would have touched boys as well as girls. He's destroyed my life. Joe, when I had my daughter, and when I had my daughter and she came to the age of five and seven, I have gone through hell to look at her and see what was taken from me. The fact that she's so vibrant. Michelle Flood there niece of one of the priests mentioned this week, Father Aloysius Flood, and just one of the many powerful callers that we heard this week laying their souls bare to uncover the hidden horrors of her past. Beyond that, really, there's nothing left to say.
but driving home late on Thursday night, listening to the Caravan Radio music programme, Oshin Leach was playing this, and both the presenter and I thought it was an Irish lament. But it's David Byrne. Poke a buggy, I'll go I know sometimes I can be wrong I know sometimes I do believe I know sometimes I can be wrong I'll be wrong until you're next to me David Byrne with I Know Sometimes a Man is Wrong ending this week's playback which was presented and compiled by Evelyn O'Rourke and if you were affected by any of the issues discussed on this week's programme you can go to rte.ie forward slash support for helpline information Playback on RTE Radio 1 